Well, in this series, we've been calling uh, this series Centering Jesus. We're talking about what it looks like when we center Jesus in our lives, in our faith, our community. Last week, we talked about uh, the political nature of the kingdom of God, that the, the kingdom of God is what Jesus proclaimed was now available, and it was an alternative to the kingdoms of this world to live a different way, to live in the presence of God in powerful uh, powerful ways. And today I want to talk about some of the methods. One of the things we noticed last week, uh, one of the biggest difference between the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that Jesus proclaimed and talked about and taught and lived and the kingdoms of this world was the way in which power is used. And so we see that in most of the kingdoms of our world, power is a top-down thing. Sometimes that has a vi- very violent component to it uh, or people who uh, are powerful, oftentimes wealthy, strong in, in sort of some traditional ways, uh, become the people that dictate how life is and other people are sort of forced to go with the flow and yet the kingdom of heaven is an alternative to that, a place where people love and serve and sacrifice themselves and show that that is what God is like and in in that to live a completely different way. So today what I want to talk about is some of the methods of the kingdom of God and and how that power is used specifically in the non-violent teachings of Jesus, that Jesus taught his followers not to retaliate when they were persecuted or when people came against them uh, violently and to live nonviolent ways. And as we do, I'll tell you this. I, my experience has been, uh, over a number of years, uh, that this kind of teaching, the nonviolent teaching of Jesus, is one of the areas of his teaching that gets the most pushback. That people go, well, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Or we start to say, how far are you supposed to really take that? Aren't there a whole bunch of, uh, of exceptions to the rule? Yeah, uh, you know, maybe Jesus teaches not to be violent in certain places, but it, it can't be that we could actually be nonviolent people. And so if that's you today and, and your sort of initial reaction to hearing that Jesus taught a, a non-retaliative and a nonviolent way is to say, I'm not really sure about that. I just want you to know that you're not alone. It's actually a really thing, I think, hard thing for us to grasp. And we'll talk a little bit about why I think that is today as we go forward. I don't think it's because we reject the ideal. Somebody said to you, wouldn't it be ideal if we lived in a peaceful world? Wouldn't it be ideal is if, if all of our conflicts, we found ways to resolve without hurting each other, without being violent, uh, physically violent or uh, verbally violent, or all the ways that we might come against each other, wouldn't it be ideal if we just found a way to live together and there was no more war uh, and there was no violence in our city and there was nobody fighting against each other? Wouldn't that be beautiful? I don't know too many people who go, oh no, I don't want that. Like, we got to fight. Most of us, that ideal sounds great. It sounds wonderful. We, we don't reject the ideal of a nonviolent world at all. In fact, most of us, I think, would embrace it. But the reason why I think a lot of us go, I don't know if this is realistic, is because of what's real. Because we live in a real world. We live in a world where there is violence. We live in a world where there is evil. We live in a world where some people hurt other people. And even if you don't want to be the instigator, you would say somebody's got to stop that evil. Somebody's got to step in. Somebody's got to protect. And sometimes that looks violent. And sometimes uh, it just needs to. And so we might have an ideal in our mind to say we wish that the world was a nonviolent place and we could all live in there. But we also have the, the realities of what is real in our world. And we have to live in this world. And we have to deal with some of the really tough questions of what happens when violence arises and what happens uh, with justice and how do we make sure that people are brought to justice. So I want us to wade into that tension today. I don't want to just pretend like it doesn't exist or this is just an easy thing for us to, uh, to, to work through and just say, ah, there's no real problems with it. I think it is a subject we have to think deeply about. Uh, one of the things we do, and I, this is probably not a good place to start, but 
but we'll do it because this is where people start anyways. When it comes to nonviolence and we think about what's ideal, but then what's real, there's two examples that most people bring up uh, when they say living nonviolently uh, all the time, 100%, is just not realistic. One of them is Hitler. And one of them is, what if somebody breaks into my house and they're threatening my family with violence? So with Hitler, uh, Hitler, you know, here's a very bad guy who rises up, a very bad movement, who does horrible atrocities, is killing so many people. Somebody, the good guys have to step up and stop the bad guys, whatever that takes. And then the other one is, well, what if I'm one night in my house and somebody breaks in and they're threatening my family? Wouldn't I do whatever I could do to do the most powerful thing to overtake them? So if somebody's going to come in and shoot my family. Am I not, you know, if I had the chance, would I not do something violent to make sure that they couldn't do that? So let me, uh, again, I don't think uh, the extremes are probably the best place to start because they kind of throw us off and make us think theoretically instead of very practically. So we're going to get to that in a minute. But let me just throw a couple of things to think about because uh, those are the most common things we, we, might, uh, we might rebut uh, nonviolence with. So let's talk about Hitler, for example. So um, it doesn't somebody has to do something about Hitler. There's some really bad people, really bad movements, and the good guys have to step up and do something about that. That's true. And the question of justice, that's a big one. You know, we have to stop evil and we have to confront injustice. We have to do something about it. Maybe even we have to punish injustice. And that's a really good point and, and very true. And so you might come to a position that even a person who follows Jesus and loves God would say, doesn't God want to protect innocent people and, and we need to make sure that we fight and all this kind of stuff? Okay, granted, I can go there with you. But you also need to realize that if that's your argument, that of course God would be on our side, at least in this extreme instance then you need to come at it from the other side and understand uh, that there were plenty of Nazi soldiers who were baptized into the Christian faith, who used their Christian faith, the way they interpreted the Bible, the way they thought about who God is, to justify their national interest and agenda and the things that they were doing and convinced that they were actually the good guys doing all that they were doing on behalf of God and in the name of Jesus. This is a historical truth. There's just, I'm not saying all Nazi soldiers were Christians, but many of them baptized into Christian faith and, and were using their religion and their philosophy to justify what they were doing. And so it's not as simple as to say, the good guys need to fight against the bad guys. The good guys have God on their side and the bad guys don't. Uh, the reality is, if we look in the history of the world, if we look at that historical problem of, hey, there are some bad people that are waging war and somebody needs to stop them, many, many, many of our wars are fueled by people who believe that God is justifying their behavior. There are many wars that have been propagated by Christian people who believe that what they were doing was in the name of Jesus and on behalf of God to do whatever he was calling them to do. And so while we might say, isn't it our duty or somebody's duty to stand up and do justice against evil, we also come to the other side and said, well, there's also a problem because uh, many of the wars that we fight are religiously fueled. What if we came to, and this isn't just a Christian problem, by the way, many religions, um, but what if we came to a place where we said, we need to attack this from the other side. Maybe we wouldn't be in so many wars if we refused to justify violent behavior against one another in the name of God. We refuse to stop thinking that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys and maybe that, that there's a deeper way to think about that. Not to say that there's not horrible atrocities and evil. There is. It's just not as simple as to say that I think the one solution is that we fight violently. That maybe we need to think about how we justify horrible behavior, uh, whoever we are, in the name of God. It's a historical problem, the one of, of war. 
There's also an imaginative problem. So people would say to you, well, imagine, imagine a scenario where somebody comes into your house and somebody is, is threatening uh, your family. I mean, an extreme one. And I hope none of us experience that. And many of us will not experience that, by the way. But we often, when we are told to imagine, we go, yeah, and I imagine that whatever weapon or gun that person has, I hope that I have a stronger one. Isn't it interesting how uh, easily our imagination assumes that the greatest power is in weapons and violence? What if we trained our imaginations to envision a different scenario? What if we could imagine that the power of God, the power of the resurrection of Jesus, the power of self-sacrificing love was and is, in fact, more powerful than the weapons of the, this world? than violence in this world. You go, wow, that's hard to imagine. Isn't that interesting how conditioned we've become to have so much faith and trust in weapons and in violence? What the Bible sometimes calls chariots and horses, they're weapons of choice in the ancient world when we're actually called to trust in God and what he's doing in our lives. Could you imagine this scenario? Imagine that there was a revolutionary person who uh, had thousands of people following them in the ancient world. Let's call him Jesus. And imagine um, that a lot of people had different expectations of what that was going to look like. Imagine many people had expectations that it was going to end up violent because he was going to overthrow the violent oppressors of the time with violence because, after all, that is how the world works, is that we use violence to overthrow violence. But imagine that this man was causing such a stir that they were going to arrest him and crucify them. Imagine that when he was being uh, arrested, one of his followers would come and and draw his sword and and would strike the servant of the high priest, this is high-ranking official, and cut off his ear. And imagine in that moment, this revolutionary leader, let's call him Jesus, that that was leading these people, had a moment to decide when they're going to arrest you so that they could crucify you, so that you could kill you, when they were going to perpetrate all the violence that they could perpetrate onto you, how is it that you would respond in that moment? Imagine that he would say to his follower, put your sword back. You don't understand what you're doing. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Imagine that before they arrest him and then they're going to beat him and then they're going to crucify him, his last miracle before he would go to the cross would be to take the ear of the servant that was just cut off by his follower and he would heal that man, his enemy. That he would be arrested, beaten, mocked, and crucified. And that God would vindicate that man by raising him from the dead and giving his spirit to the world, such that thousands of years later, there would be millions and millions of people that would follow that Jesus and proclaim that he is Lord, and that he is Savior, and that the world would never, ever be different, such that there would be a group of people, even like us, that would be sitting in a place like this, worshiping him. Well, it doesn't seem practical, and yet, as Christians, this is the one that we follow. This is the way of the cross, the way of the cross that doesn't say we're not concerned about evil and justice and just throw it out, but that instead says maybe there is a better way. Maybe there needs to be a better way than simply treating people the way that they treat us, retaliating in kind, but instead showing the power of self-sacrificing love. Perhaps we need to retrain our imaginations to imagine how powerful it is that God can work in ways that are not violent and retaliatory. I would love for you in your life groups to debate that this week. 
I would love for you to get together. I know that doesn't eliminate all the issues and all the struggles and to say, really, are there exceptions or no exceptions? And when would there be and all that kind of stuff? I would love for you to get together and just talk about, well, let's, let's get deeper into that and let's read about what Jesus has to say uh, and maybe even talk about some of those big scenarios because they're not easy questions and I don't want to pretend like it is easy and like, hey, hey, in a couple of minutes, I can just remove those tensions because I can't. But as we think about those extreme examples, could we spend the rest of our time today coming down to ways in which the the nonviolent or non-retaliative teachings of Jesus actually affect our everyday lives? Because the reality is we're very fortunate. Those of us, uh, maybe if you've been born in Canada or now live in Canada, this part of the world, we're very fortunate that most of us are not being conscripted to go to war that we don't actually have to deal with that question. Most of us have not had an intruder break into our house and uh, threaten our family or our own lives. We certainly have some violence in our city. There are uh, things that are happening around us, and yet we live in, relatively speaking, a very safe place in the world. Although some of us might have come from or, or still be in circumstances that are very different than that. But we do need to ask ourselves, where do we encounter violence? And perhaps that's in the home, perhaps there's abusive situations, perhaps it's not just physical abuse, but maybe it's verbal, maybe it's the way that we we treat each other, the way that we uh, interact with each other when there's conflict, the way uh, that we fight on all different levels, might be uh, personal, might be marital, might be in friendships, might be at work, but there are still these ways that we use our actions, our attitudes, and our words against one another. And maybe, even if we think that this whole idea of nonviolence is not practical, we can just start by practicing. And maybe if we started practicing in the, the small, everyday ways where we're tempted to be against one another and instead found a way to be for one another, to sacrifice for each other, to forgive each other, to show grace, to seek uh, reconciliation as we can, maybe if we practiced in this small everyday ways, that if and when it came to these, these big, more extreme situations, we'd be more prepared to make a decision on how we would act, more prepared to live out our values. So that's what I want to talk about today, is what does it look like on an everyday level? Uh, and I want to just go through some of the teachings of Jesus, because I think there are some things that we assume about his nonviolence that uh, might not be true, and hopefully some helpful things for us as we just think through uh, what it looks like to deal with our conflict in a different way than most of the world does. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5. We have been talking about our kind of Anabaptist heritage that has gone before us. And uh, the Anabaptists, again, not that there's just one way of of dealing with nonviolence, but Anabaptists hold a historic peace position as they follow Jesus. And one of the ways they get that, as we've been talking about, is from the Sermon on the Mount, which becomes a central text uh, as Jesus teaches us what the heart of God is like uh, and how we can follow him. So I want to read a couple of passages from Matthew chapter 5. It'll teach us a little bit about how Jesus uh, read and interpreted his Bible, and we want to deal a little bit with this subject of retaliation and what Jesus calls us to. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus starts, as he does in this section, um, with a number of topics by quoting something from the Bible. So he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is from the Old Testament. Some passages like this. Exodus chapter 21 says, but if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. So 
equal punishment, it is to equal punishment, what he's saying here, is to restrict retaliation from escalating. So in the Old Testament, you have these laws, and somebody might be tempted to say, uh, if somebody hurts me in a certain way, I'm going to hurt them, and I'm going to really get them. And there were these laws to say, no, 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 we have to have fair punishments for the crime. So if someone does this to you, you can only go as far as to do the same thing to them. You can't hurt them more than they can hurt you. So the law is to restrict people from going too far. Leviticus 24 says something similar. It says, anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. So you can't just come up with your own thing. If you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you way more than me. It's a restriction. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's sort of a floor. It is not the ceiling. It is not this is God's ideal for you. This is the best you can do. It is the, the floor of you have to do at least this. At least when it comes to retaliation, don't go further than what somebody has done to you. So Jesus starts there. You've read that. It's in your Bible. You could justify that kind of retaliative behavior. And you could go to your Bible and say, well, there it is. That's the law. But Jesus goes further. So he says, do not resist the one who is evil. Specifically that word resist, and I think this is important for us to understand because sometimes we read this and think Jesus is saying, if someone does something evil, bad, inflicts pain, then you just do nothing. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all. We'll see that in just a second. Uh, but the word resist here uh, in Greek would have had original connotations of like a military resistance, a violent resistance. So what we're going to see is Jesus, he doesn't say, if somebody does something terrible to you, we'll just, whatever, just keep letting them do that. Too. It doesn't matter. No, no, no. But he is saying, you're not going to retaliate in the same way. And you're not going to retaliate in a violent way. But instead, you're going to do something different. And then he gives us three examples that for us, uh, you know, these are probably not things that are going to happen to you, but I think they really help us to understand some principles of what we might do in a world where sometimes people hurt us, people do things that are wrong against us. What might we do? So uh, our first example, he says, don't resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Does anybody want to get slapped just to help me with a, I'm serious. Mark, can I slap you? Can you come up here? Can I slap you? Come on. Just it's a visual. It's important. It's, it's for Jesus. Here, come right up here. Okay, so here we are. Uh, let's say you don't get to slap, just me. Remember? Non-retaliative. Learn the lesson. Okay, but let's say, let's say I'm upset with you. I don't know. Maybe you did something to bug me. Maybe I'm just in a bad mood. I don't know, but, um, but I'm going to get, now I'm not going to punch you. I'm going to slap you. So punching you would be, it would probably hurt more. Slapping you would probably be more of an insult. Okay, right? So let's say, here we are. I'm right-handed. Most people are right-handed. Okay, and I'm going to slap you. Okay. okay. But what cheek? Uh, this one. Which is left. your left cheek. Okay. But Jesus, little, he, he said the right cheek, which means I have to go a little bit differently. Yeah. So one, I'm insulting you, yeah. but uh, as a right-handed person, to get to your left cheek, I actually have to do one of these. So now I'm hitting you with my backhand. Okay, so then you're going to, bam, and your head goes out. Now, what are you going to do? As a good Jesus follower, I just slapped you. I'm going to turn the other cheek. Why? You're going to turn me your right cheek just to let me hit yeah, you again? But maybe you're saying, hey, you just insulted me with this yeah. backhanded thing. Why don't you hit me like we're equals? Okay. Now, this is different. Thank you, Mark, yeah, for doing that. Yeah. Just wanted to show people. <laughs> Thanks for not hitting me back. 
So now what's happened? Jesus says, oh, whatever, just let somebody hit you. No, he says if somebody insults you by treating you like you are not even worthy to be their opponent, then you turn the cheek and say, if you're going to slap me, at least slap me like we are equals. In this, I think what's happening is Jesus is saying that person is going to realize the injustice. Hopefully they're going to realize they might not, but they're going to realize not just they're doing violence, but the injustice that is involved, that they're actually going to bring that to the forefront that hopefully he, he or people will go, oh, look at this. And this guy is showing, I will not just be treated like somebody who is less than you. Now, I didn't hit you back, but I found a creative way to reveal and bring the injustice to the forefront in a way that hopefully uh, is provocative and people think. So example two, we get more into it. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, which is like a shirt, uh, let him have your cloak as well. Okay, here's, so now picture this. Uh, you're in court. Um, your cloak, which is your outer garment, kind of like a coat that we would wear. There's actually laws about what you can do with someone's coat. So let's say you owed somebody money. That's probably what we're talking about. Somebody's suing you, uh, and you owe them money, and they want your cloak. It's kind of like a security for you to pay them. So uh, you're going to be really cold without your coat. You're going to need it back, and so you're going to pay me back real quick. There was actually laws in the Old Testament that said, even if you did that, like that was your business arrangement, you had to give the cloak back at nighttime because it gets cold at nighttime. And so it's really cruel to take their cloak all night long. And so there was a law. Man, here's the bottom shelf. You got to at least give the cloak back at night. Take it again the next day as a security. Um, but but we, we just can't treat each other like that. So now picture this. A Jewish man in the first century only wears two garments. A cloak and a tunic. The cloak is like the coat on the outside. The tunic is, is more right against the skin that would cover. So now you're in court. Somebody wants to sue you to take your tunic, your shirt. So you go, okay, I'll give you that. Give him your cloak as well. So now you're standing in court, naked. And people are going, wait a second, you're not even supposed to take the guy's coat for a whole night. And here's this guy, you're taking everything from him, right? Again, Jesus is not just playing, Jesus is being a little bit funny here. And he's going, imagine this scenario. Now, here's somebody being sued for their stuff, unjustly maybe, and it's like if they take your, your shirt, we'll give them everything. Give them the whole thing. And hopefully people are going to look on and go, look at this injustice. How could they take all the guy's clothes? They're supposed to give him his coat back at least to sleep. They cannot do this. He's exposing the injustice here by finding a creative solution to come back that is not just, I'm going to do to you what you do to me. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Roman soldiers in this time, they could come to a civilian. Roman soldiers, imagine they got all their pack, all their military stuff is heavy. As they were walking around, it was law that they could go to a normal citizen they could go to a Jewish person, even though they're not part of their, technically part of their ethnicity, their culture, and they could give them all their pack and say, you got to go a mile with me. You got to carry my stuff. That was the law. But a Roman soldier could not force anyone to go further than a mile. That was the floor. It was too cruel. It was too inconvenient. It was too much to ask from people. Such to the point is that if you ask someone to go more than a mile with your pack as a melee, you would actually probably be looking around your soldier to say, if my superior sees this, I could get in a lot of trouble for doing something that's against the law. I'm asking too much. Jesus says, if you find yourself in that situation and it's unjust that these people who are oppressing you are making you carry their military pack and they, got, they can take you a mile, you go another mile. 
you go and show that injustice and show your strength and show a different way to come back and not to take out the weapons and fight the guy, but to, to find a creative solution that goes further than what you have been asked to do. Actually shows great strength, actually shows great creativity to point out those injustices, not to leave them just as they are, but actually to find, to find a creative and non-retaliative way to point out the injustice so that, that hopefully there's this response of, whoa, whoa, this is not right, this is not right. And I don't think Jesus stops here. I think he uses these examples to say, what if we started to think more creatively? There's this false dilemma when it comes to violence and, and, and nonviolence. The false dilemma is sometimes we think uh, that we either have to retaliate in kind or do nothing. Somebody's doing something evil. Somebody's violently oppressing other people. Somebody is coming to fight you. Well, you can either fight them the way that they fight you, or you can do nothing. You can just be totally passive. I don't think Jesus teaches either of those things. I think what Jesus is teaching is, what if we found creative solutions to not retaliate in kind, but also not to do nothing, to find a way to point out injustice, to expose it for what it is, and to move forward in a way that is consistent with the kingdom of God. Not power over, but power under. How do we find a way to love and sacrifice and care? I don't think, by the way, and this is very important, I don't think this means that we allow ourselves to continue to be abused. So crucial for us to understand, because I think sometimes these kind of texts are, are misused, and there are people who find themselves in situations where they are, are suffering and where people are doing bad things to them, and they say, well, I just have to turn the other cheek. I just have to stay in the circumstances. I just have to take it, and I actually hope that our church community would be a place where people would feel safe if they're suffering, if they're suffering some kind of abuse, whether that's verbal, whether it's physical, whatever it might be, to know that there are people who care for you here, to know that you could tell that to someone in your life group, to know that you could tell that to someone in leadership, to know that there are people who sit around you every Sunday morning that want to keep you safe, and that that is an important part of it. As Jesus teaches these things, he's not just saying, well, just sit by idly and let it happen. No, he is telling, I think, his followers that injustice needs to be experienced exposed and needs to be worked on. It's just that we want to do that in a better way, in a more productive and healthy way. We want to stop that abuse. We want to stop um, those, those things that are evil and unhealthy and hurtful, whatever they might be. Why would you do any of that? I mean, you got to stop and go, yeah, but why? I mean, people who are doing bad things, we should just like, let them have it. Our sense of, of justice really resounds that way, I think. The next section is very important and very difficult for us, I think, to really let sink into our hearts. But Jesus says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's not a quote from the Old Testament, but you can certainly find it. You can certainly find lots of passages. You can certainly find uh, ways to use the Bible if you're looking for them uh, to justify bad behavior, violence, war, all kinds of stuff. And I think Jesus is pointing that out. You've heard it. We've all, we've all interpreted the Bible this way. Love your neighbor. Love your family. Love the people that are around you. Love the people who are on your side. But hate your enemy. Fight against your enemy. Kill your enemy. But I say, Jesus says, so hard. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Just listen, everybody in the world loves their neighbor, like their family, their friends, the people who are like them. 
And then he has this challenge. I think this is one of the hardest things Jesus teaches us. So, but I'm telling you to love your neighbor and then you go, or you love your enemy. You go, why? Why would we love our enemies? They are our enemies. And essentially what he says is because God loves your enemy. God loves just people and he loves unjust people. He sends rain and he sends sun to people who are good and people who aren't good. These are farmers. So that's the way that make sure that they have crops. He's providing for them. He's caring for them. And if you want to be children of God, If you want there to be a family resemblance, don't just love your neighbor, love your enemy. Oh, man. But then we realize in the New Testament writers, they just plug this in, they take this further, and they go, you know, this is all of us. Like, while we were God's enemies, he loved us. While we were far from God, while we were doing things offensive to God, while we were doing things against God, he sent Jesus to die for us. He didn't just wait until, oh, well, now you're my friends. Now you've got it together. And okay, we can make that work. But even when we were his enemies, it's incredible. This is the love of God. So hard to fathom. So hard for us to think it's practical. But even if you don't think that nonviolence is practical, what if we practiced? What if we tried to practice in our everyday lives? Here's some practical tips for practicing Nonviolence, And I think we, again, need to start and just acknowledge that our, our violence often, uh, maybe it, it looks like on a smaller scale, but uh, it's against our spouse. It's against our coworkers. It's our attitudes. It's our words. It's just the idea that I'm against you or you, you hurt me and I need to hurt you back maybe a little bit more than you hurt me. And actually, Jesus says, uh, I'm calling you to a different way. Number one, what if we got on the same side? This is so hard. Got on the same side with our enemies. There's moments, again, where this might be your spouse and you just realize we are not on the same side and there's some very real problems and some issues. And every time I do premarital counseling with people who are getting married, one of the things we talk about in conflict resolution, because we're all going to have fights, is especially if you can get this right from the get-go, is to realize that in marriage there's only one team, which means if you're fighting and you're hoping to win, which means your spouse loses, then you're both going to lose because there's only one side. In Genesis, it talks about marriage, it says two become one. There's only one team. And so if there's an issue and you're on one side and I'm on the other side and one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose, we're both going to lose. But what if we said, we might have an issue, but let's come over on the same side. Let's together work on the issue. Instead of trying to hurt each other and trying to just get my way and trying to impose my power on you, what if we said, we have an issue, but what if we collectively found a solution together, found a way forward in that way? Maybe that's fine if it's your spouse, but you say, what if this is somebody who's really against me? What if this is somebody who's really violent? You know, what if this is a more extreme example? I mean, Jesus says by saying, pray for those who persecute you. And for some of us, that might be the first step. I need to pray for some people that I have such a hard time ever imagining that I could love. They've hurt me so deeply. They've wounded me in really deep ways. And what if we just said, man, as an act of faith, I don't know if I can get there. I don't feel like it. I don't want to do it. I'm going to pray for those who are against me. Pray for those who have hurt me. To see others as image bearers of God the way Jesus teaches us. These are people uh, that even if they really are doing terrible, horrible things, are people that God loves. Number two, start small and reject retaliation. So again, think uh, not just about the things that we can argue about on a huge grand scale, uh, but start with the words or the attitudes or the actions that might be in your life that are antagonistic, that are violent, even if it's not physically violent, although it might be, but in what other ways are you trying to impose harm on other people? Maybe because you're hurt. 
Maybe because you're suffering, that you're struggling, but where are those ways um, that are so far from, what about Hitler? But what about me? What about my heart? Where am I antagonistic? And then to reject the way that says, when someone hurts me, I'm just going to hurt them back. To find in your own heart to say, maybe uh, as we follow Jesus, there's a more creative solution than just hurting somebody. It's not to pretend that it doesn't exist, but maybe uh, there's something that's healthier. Maybe there's something that's bigger, a better way to deal with this problem. What if we stop demonizing people with whom we disagree or have conflicts? Stop making them out to be uh, worse than, than actually perhaps they've been treating you. And then number three, be creative. Look for solutions that address injustice or wrongs committed without resorting to those retaliative measures. Seek restoration and forgiveness. Look for other options. Be creative. Don't fall into the false dilemma that says, I either have to retaliate the same way I've been treated or do nothing. Because I think the kingdom of God shows us uh, that there's this powerful love, there's this, this powerful, powerful way that looks like the cross to deal with injustice and offer a different way of living than most of the world lives. So there was this movie uh, seven or eight years ago, I think, called uh, um, Hacksaw Ridge. And it's about a, a real story of a, a man named Desmond Doss. Um, Desmond Doss uh, grew up in the United States, he's American, um, and uh, eventually he joined the military. Except he had the conviction because of, uh, partially because of his religious beliefs, his faith, uh, and partially because of experience in his past uh, of nonviolence, that he wasn't going to be violent. And part of that came from the fact that uh, one day in his childhood, he was wrestling with his brother and he almost accidentally killed his brother. Another instance was uh, he saw his father threaten his mother, very serious, violent way, and, and he picked up a gun and he pointed at his father and he almost shot his father. And these examples, just, or instances in his life, uh, just rooted themselves and said, there's got to be a better way. And, and as someone who followed Jesus, he said, we've got to find a different way. And yet he finds himself signing up for, for the military. He wanted to be a medic. And yet he got to put in a regular unit and, and he's deployed. This is World War II. Um, and, and he finds himself, obviously, all the people in his unit, they hate the guy. Because who wants to go to a war with someone that in the middle of a battle is not going to shoot? It's not going to protect you in that way. And so they actually, they beat this guy. Uh, they ridiculed him. They tried everything they could do to get him discharged, and, and nothing worked. And this guy continued on it, and he felt like, in some ways, I have a duty to do something about injustice, and yet I can't bring myself to take human life. I can't, I can't be that violent. And so uh, as the movie unfolds, it's a true story, but you can see it in the movie. Um, he's trying to find these ways, and he's enduring uh, not just, I'm in, an, I'm in a war with other people who are trying to kill us, but also everybody around me hates me and wants me gone until they get to th this battle uh, and his unit gets deployed into it uh, and there's, there's casualties on both sides. It's really bad. And finally, his unit has an opportunity to escape and, and down this, uh, this big cliff. And they all get out and, and there's, there's a bunch of guys that get out and there's a bunch of guys that don't get out. And as he's standing ready to have his turn to be, uh, to be basically rescued, he's convicted that he's got to go and he's got he's to bring out people that can't get out on his own. And so he prays, God, if I could save just one. And he runs back in and he grabs one of his, his fellow soldiers who's wounded and he carries him out. And every time he comes back to the place where they're, they're taking them by rope down, uh, down this cliff to safety, he just prays again. He goes, God, if I could just save one more. And he goes back in and he goes back in and he goes back in and he goes back in. And a great threat to his own life. He just says, there's got to be something I can do. And this is it. And at the end of the day, he saved 75 lives. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor, the super high, uh, incredible honor in the United States. 
He refused to participate in the retaliation. He refused, refused to participate in the violence. And yet he found a creative way in the middle of injustice to bring self-sacrificial love and care as his expression of following Jesus in the way of the cross. That is like the opposite extreme example. And you might sit there, I do, and go, I don't know if I have enough faith to do that. I don't know if I could ever do that. That seems wild and crazy and just so out of the ordinary, so out of my power. But what if, even if we didn't think that nonviolence was practical, in small, little, everyday ways, we started to practice. So Heavenly Father, today I want to pray for, uh, I want to pray for our hearts. I want to pray for our minds and our imaginations as oftentimes we imagine that the most powerful thing in this world is violence and power and weapons. Would you help us to see that your love, your spirit in a completely different way is so much more powerful? Help us to trust that. God, uh, to be honest, many of us, we may have lots of questions about living a nonviolent life, and yet I pray that you would convict us in our everyday world, in our hearts and in our minds, that where we set out against people, you would help us to come together, that we would not be people who ignore injustice, but people who point it out, but seek a better way, seek the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom. Would you plant your peace in our hearts and our minds and help us as we practice in little ways such that if, God, we ever end up in the bigger ways, we might be more prepared. We thank you for Jesus, who even though uh, we were enemies of you, he died for us in love to bring us into your family. And we pray that uh, amongst us, there might be a family resemblance of peace in Christ's name.